Hear the word of God from Isaiah and Matthew's Gospel. Isaiah chapter 36. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sennacherib of Assyria came to attack the fortified towns of Judah and conquered them. Then the king of Assyria sent his chief of staff from Lachish with a huge army to confront King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. The Assyrians took up a position beside the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool near the road leading to the field where cloth is washed. Then the Assyrians' king's chief of staff told them to give this message to Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you have rebelled against me? On Egypt? If you lean on Egypt, it will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is completely unreliable. But perhaps you will say to me, we are trusting in the Lord our God. But isn't he the one who was insulted by Hezekiah? Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah and Jerusalem worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? I'll tell you what, strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find that many men to ride on them. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops, even with the help of Egypt's chariots and charioteers? What's more, do you think we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? The Lord himself told us, attack this land and destroy it. Then the chief of staff stood and shouted in Hebrew to all the people on the wall, listen to this message from the great king of Assyria. This is what the king says, don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He will never be able to rescue you. Don't let him fool you into trusting into the Lord by saying the Lord will surely rescue us. This city will never fall into the hands of the Assyrian king. Don't listen to Hezekiah. These are the terms the king of Assyria is offering. Make peace with me, open the gates and come out. Then each of you can continue eating from your own grapevine and fig tree and drinking from your own well. Then I will arrange to take you to another land like this one, a land of grain and new wine, bread and vineyards. Don't let Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? What happened to the gods of Hamath and Arpad? What about the gods of Sepharvim? Did any god rescue Samaria from my power? What god of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? So what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem from me? But the people were silent and did not utter a word because Hezekiah had commanded them, do not answer him. Then Elikahim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joha, son of Asaph, the royal historian, went back to Hezekiah. They tore their clothes in despair and they went in to see the king and told him what the Assyrian chief of staff had said. Now to chapter 37, verse 14. After Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. 
Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations, and they have thrown the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course the Assyrians could destroy them. They are not gods at all, only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power, then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Here is the proof that what I say is true. For a remnant of my people will spread out from Jerusalem, a group of survivors from Mount Zion. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's army will make this happen. And this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His armies will not enter Jerusalem. They will not even shoot an arrow at it. They will not march outside its gates with their shields, nor build banks of earth against its walls. The king will return to his own country by the same road on which he came. He will not enter the city, says the Lord. For my own honor and for the sake of my servant David, I will defend this city and protect it. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. Matthew 11, 25-30 At the time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Rebecca, for reading that long passage. Um, welcome to Waypoint. My name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a sermon series in Matthew and Isaiah. And most of the time, you won't, this is kind of something new. We prayed about it, and, and as pastors, we decided and elders that this would be a good idea. Because Matthew is the fulfillment of the promises of this Messiah, and Isaiah is the major Old Testament book of prophecy pointing us. They all point to Christ, but it's, it's really about the good news of Jesus coming, and Matthew is the fulfillment of that. So by putting them together, we're seeing how the Bible fits together. Some of you might have come this morning thinking we are going to continue on in the Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, Pastor Lawrence preached last Sunday on the Beatitudes. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, I challenge you to go back and listen. It, it was really good, and, and we needed it. Some of you might be thinking, did we specifically choose these sermons based on what's going on in our world right now? That I choose to preach on a king who does, you know, two systems of government, two systems of power fighting, and, and you know, one kind of trusting God, one trusting in earthly power? No, we didn't choose it today. This is actually where we were in the series, but... 
God's word is always relevant to what's going around us. So no matter what we talk about as we go through the Bible together as God's people, it will be relevant. And I feel like this passage and last week's passage and next week's passage in the Sermon on the Mount will continue to be relevant to what God is, what's going on around us and what God is teaching us. And the amazing thing that you'll realize as you read the Sermon on the Mount and we study it for two more weeks, it's always relevant. It's always part of who we are as God's people. We need to continually go back to the teachings of our master, of our king, of our Lord and Savior. But for this morning, we're looking at the story of Hezekiah and its placement in Isaiah. This is the, a time in, Hez, in Isaiah There's called a historical interlude. Early on, we looked at one with King Ahaz. Most of the time, it's Isaiah giving prophecy. But there's a few of these historical interludes where it Isaiah actually, it shows you the engagement or what's going on in the time as Isaiah is, is prophesying and working within Jerusalem. And at this moment in the historical interlude, we get to this king, Hezekiah. And Judah and Israel had split. There are two kingdoms, and Judah is the southern kingdom and has Jerusalem the capital. The other one comes to be known as the land of Samaria. And there's, after Solomon, the two kingdoms, they split into two kingdoms. And Isaiah is prophesying to both and he's prophesying to all the nations around and we're going to watch a short video that explains that in a second but before we get to that I want to think about Hezekiah because Hezekiah is one of the good kings and like David Hezekiah makes a lot of good decisions and I was thinking about why does Isaiah stop and write about him and why do David and Hezekiah and a few of the other kings get a little more stuff written about them and I was thinking about a time when I went on a trip a couple years ago. My son had a field trip for school, and we went to Washington, D.C. And we had a president of the United States who was president for four years and three months. And there's a stack in Washington, D.C., right outside the Ford's Theater, as you wait to go in line. And this is a stack of 6,800 books written about Abraham Lincoln. And actually, there's over 15,000 books in print written about Abraham Lincoln and his his life and, and what he did. And remember, he was only president for four years and three months, and he was in office just for a little bit before that. And I think about how much time and energy we spend studying him. And I th when I look at this passage in Isaiah, and I think, why does Isaiah end the whole section, 1 through 39, with Hezekiah and the story of Hezekiah? And then in 40, it's kind of a new pointing us to the hope and the comfort that we have in God. But to start us off, I want us to watch a three-minute video, part of the Bible Project's video on Hezekiah, I mean on Isaiah 13 to 39. Please watch this short video, and then we'll come back to the So first, we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. And Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. 
But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity, and it's described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin, and one day is going to be replaced by the new Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance, and the city is miraculously saved overnight. But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. Thank you, Bible Project, for quickly summarizing uh, where we are in Isaiah and how we got to this part of Hezekiah. So I felt like that was, you know, because we're going back and forth between Matthew and Isaiah, I wanted to give you guys a chance to just catch up to the story. So for this morning, I want to answer this question. What can we learn from the story of Hezekiah and its placement in Isaiah? Like, why does this how he ends the section about, like, before the comfort section? You know, 1 through 39 is just... All your mistakes that lead you into exile, even the best king you can muster up, leads you into exile. So there's four points I want to look at, four things I want us to learn from this. One is you can either trust God or the systems of this world. Two, God is moving even in our brokenness. Three, the best we can muster up still falls short. And four, we can trust God's promises and his covenant faithfulness. If you notice that fourth point is like 95% of the points in 95% of my sermons, especially as we've been looking at the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Um, so let's, let's dive in. You can either trust God or the systems of this world. So Sinatra, cool name to say, I don't really know how to say it exactly. I listened to the Hebrew pronunciation, but it was a little different than the English. But 
Sennacherib is this king of Assyria, and he's got power, and he feels like he can go down to Egypt and conquer them. I mean, he's, he's the boss. And Jerusalem, parts of the, the area around have already been overtaken by the Assyrians. And because of Hezekiah's faithfulness in God, God has protected them. Jerusalem is still a walled city. There's still one other walled city south of Jerusalem that the Assyrians haven't been able to take over. And he sends, the king of Assyria sends his, his men to make an announcement. And he says, don't let Hezekiah, he, first he speaks to the leaders then he speaks to the people. He actually uses their language, the Hebrew language, instead of Aramaic, which is kind of the universal language. And he says, don't let Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? So he's saying, and he makes fun of God and he makes fun of Hezekiah. And he's like, your God won't protect you, but I will make an allegiance with us and everything will be okay. And Hezekiah knows that this goes against what God said. God called them out of Egypt and said, this is your land and I will protect you. I will be your God. So you have this power struggle between the systems of the world based on pride and arrogance and power. And then you have Hezekiah saying, I'm going to trust in God. In Isaiah 37, and this account is also in 2 Kings, almost word for word. So Isaiah intentionally has it the historical account that we read in 2 Kings in the midst of his prophecy. Because there's, there's, there's a method to this. There's a reason for this. this. And it says, after, after Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and he read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And he prayed, O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel. And he goes on and he says, open your eyes, Lord, listen to the words that are defying against you, the living God. It's true that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations. But you are the true God. Their gods are literally wood and, and idols. But you are the true God. And he says this in verse 20. This is Isaiah 37, 20. Now, Lord, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power. And then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, are God. So Hezekiah trusts at this moment, he trusts God and not the power structures of the world. Can you imagine his scenario? Like, probably the people and most of the leaders who knew the armies knocking at their door were like, let's just make an alliance with them. They had already made an alliance with Egypt because of their fear of Assyria. So the kings of Israel, that's part of what Isaiah is dealing with in Isaiah, you know, earlier in the, in the book, somewhere between in the, cha the chapters between like 20 and 28, is there this allegiance and this alliance they made with Egypt in fear of Assyria. But Hezekiah fears God, not like some of the kings before him, and doesn't make an alliance with them and says, God, I have no idea how you're going to make this happen. On paper, they destroy us. But I know that Hezekiah was a man of God's word. And my guess is he knew the stories of God's faithfulness. Not my guess. I mean, I know he did how God delivered them out of Egypt. And he would have been familiar with Psalm 20, where David says, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the Lord, the God of Jacob, protect you. And David goes on. I'm going to jump ahead to um, verse 6. It says, May the Lord grant all your requests. And he says, Now I know this. 
The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Notice what the king of Assyria tempts them with. I'll, I'll protect you with, and I'll even give you chariots and horses. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. A lot of American Christians claim this a lot for all kinds of things. Sometimes it's in probably a good biblical context, sometimes context, sometimes it's not. But I think Hezekiah knew the promises of God and he believed them. And it says, they are brought to their knees and fall, but we will rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. So Hezekiah, this is his moment. And he trusts God. Everything stacked against him. Everything. There's no way they could win without God. It's just too much. The armies are too big. Jerusalem, this fort, small fortified city. There's no way that they could, they could survive this invasion. So this leads to the question some of you might be asking right now. So if we humble ourselves and follow God... Are we going to get this amazing victory like Hezekiah got? You know, I don't know. It, how did they die? Probably of some kind of disease or something. We just don't know. There's, it doesn't say how they died. They could have. We just don't know. Um, we know that they died. We, and even the number 185,000, sometimes in the Old Testament, the zero is, it could have been 18,000. We, we just don't even know the way that they use numbers like in the way that we get the transmission of it. We know the Bible is true and will not fail and is without error. But at the same time, we know that the, whatever happened to those soldiers in the field that day, they, many of them died, most of them died, and the king of Assyria retreats. So God fights the battle for Hezekiah. So for some of us, we might be saying, okay, so if I humble myself and follow God and pray like Hezekiah, my Hezekiah moment, you know. Will all, everything work out like it did for Hezekiah? And my answer is, we will not get the powers and the kingdoms of this world. So if you want to pray like Hezekiah, but you want the result to be to get the power that you're praying doesn't, the, the powers of this world, it won't work because God, God will not answer prayers. God is not in the business of giving us the powers of, in the principalities of this world and the kingdoms of this world. But we will get what we need to thrive in this world and we get the powers and the kingdom of Jesus, the powers of Jesus and his spirit and the powers to fight darkness and the darkness in the world. So many times as Christians and American Christians, because I'm one of them, we don't know how to deal with this. We don't know how to pray for power. And that's part of what we're going to look at in this sermon. And look at Hezekiah's example. And look at what happens to Hezekiah later on in the narrative. But remember this. The disciples themselves, after a year of being with Jesus, hearing his, the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes, they thought that Jesus was going to be a military victor who defeated the Romans, overthrew Herod, and created a powerful earthly kingdom. They didn't know how it was going to happen, but they, that's what they anticipated. But Jesus showed them through his life and his death and his resurrection. And Matthew is showing us. This is why the book of Matthew is written. 
what the kingdom of God looks like. And when Jesus starts the proclamation, you know, after he's tempted and he says, repent, the kingdom of God is here and he heals some people. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not blessed are the ones who get the earthly power, who conquer Rome, who conquer the earthly power. So why I'm linking these two stories together and showing the, where they fit is to show that Hezekiah was, was part of God's plan. And at his moment, he did pray and trust God, and God kept them together. But as Isaiah shows throughout the book, throughout chapters 1 through 39, and then all of chapters 40 through 66, our hope isn't in the present Jerusalem. That present Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. It was inevitable that Hezekiah lived in. Our hope is in this new Jerusalem, and we, as the church, filled with the Spirit, are part of that now. We're part of building this city that's not part of human structures and powers. So we move on, and we were reminded in Ephesians 6 from Paul, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Hezekiah got that in his way, in his time. He trusted God, and we can trust God. So the next thing I see in this, this account, this narrative, is that God is moving even in our brokenness. Remember what Isaiah is about. It's about judgment and hope. And Hezekiah and the people generally trusted God, but they still made mistakes. And at that moment, they trusted God, and God gave them victory. In Isaiah 41, 8 through 10, it says, But you, Israel, my servant, O Jacob, which I have chosen. This is after the Hezekiah account. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners. I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will help hold you with my righteous right hand. So the promise from the beginning was even when the Israelites made mistakes... God's faithfulness, God would still work within their brokenness. And this is playing out in Isaiah. Some of you might be thinking to yourselves, okay, this sounds good, Danny. Trust God and not the system of this world. But there are so many disagreements in the church on how to do this. Actually, this week, this past couple of weeks, this past couple of months with COVID and political stuff, there's been more disagreements than in a long time. At least they're visible. They're on the internet. They're they're fleshing their way out. How do we do it? Do we join the army or become pacifists? Do we try to use the powers of the structures of this world to advance the church? How do we balance this? Um, and this sermon this morning is not meant to answer these questions. But many parts of the Bible do this, and they do answer these questions. But for today, I want to assure you, like we can learn from Isaiah, that God is working even in the brokenness, even in the disagreements, even when we're struggling. Do we align with Assyria because they seem more powerful? Is that what God wants us to do? Probably some of Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's advisors were telling him that. Or do we do what we're taught in the law, the Torah of Moses? Like I said, today's sermon isn't going to answer that. There are other parts of the Bible, but I want to, we can be assured that God is working even when the system 
is broken. Three, third thing we can learn from this account. The best we can muster up still falls short. In 2 Kings 18.5, it says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him of all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. So basically it's saying after Solomon, he's the greatest king. Solomon and David were part of the United Kingdom, but since it was Judah as a kingdom, the Bible is calling him the greatest king. But if we look at Isaiah 30 and 38 and 39, we see that even the good king, pride's crept in. David, the good king, the best king, fell. The best we can muster up falls short. Romans sums it up clearly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'd love to give you a sermon this morning called Hezekiah Moment. Your Hezekiah Moment. You're slaying your giants for Jesus. I'd love for that to be the theme. That would be much more, you'd probably, yeah! But then you'd walk away and that would fall, it'd fall apart later. Because what Hezekiah teaches us is that there are moments when we trust God in the small things each day, and then, then we can trust God in the medium things, and then we can trust God in the large things. Starbucks terms would be what? What's their small called? Wait. Tall. The tall is the small at Starbucks. The medium's the grande, which is Spanish for big. So you guys... But are you trusting God in the small things, not the tall things? Are you trusting God in the medium things so then you can trust God in the bigger things? Like a lot of us just want to slay the giants and do the big things. But I think being a faithful Christian is just each day trusting him with the small decisions. Saying, I'm going to live for you right now, God. And I think that's how Hezekiah's life was. Now, when Hezekiah made this great decision, he gets sick later and then he, God heals him and then he... King of Babylon comes and he shows him all the treasury and Isaiah's like, what? Didn't you learn? And the best we can muster up still falls short. We will make mistakes, but God is doing something in us and and it's not on us. It's on him. And this is point four. We can trust God's promises and his covenant faithfulness. His deliverance and and comfort is evident in Isaiah 40 to, to 66, which some people would call the fifth gospel. The pre-gospel that points us to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospels. The good news of Jesus. His deliverance and comfort is our hope. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the faithfulness of God. A couple weeks ago, while we were studying Matthew, we, we talked about the account of the Magi. 600 years after Isaiah, the true king is born. Men from Assyria or Babylon, from that region, see a star and come worship the true king, while the Jewish king tries to kill Jesus. You see how God is, even in the brokenness, even in the mess, his faithfulness, his promises are coming true. We can trust him. We can fully put our hope in his promises and his covenant faithfulness. So in conclusion this morning, I want to answer one question. How do we trust God alone and not the false promises and systems of this broken and fallen world? This is the million dollar question. If I answer this well and you guys write a book, I'll be set for life. But unfortunately, I'm not gonna fully answer it. I'm gonna answer it by saying, just keep trusting in God. 
I'm, I'm letting you know now, so don't get your hopes up too much. But I am going to show you God's word where God deals with this and allows us and gives us the tools and gives us what we need to begin to trust him, to trust him in those small things and those medium things and those, you know, tall and grande moments. There's a few people in the crowd are laughing. So thanks. Thanks, Ben, for laughing at my bad jokes. My dad jokes are pretty bad, but my kids, they used to kind of be like dad jokes. Now they, they kind of, if I don't do a dad joke about at least once a day or so, they're, they're kind of sad. Um, they're, they're literally probably rolling their eyes right now, and the youth group is texting each other about my silly joke. But, wow. Okay, so back to the, back to the sermon and, and to the Bible. So how do we trust God alone and not the false promises and systems of this broken and fallen world? Trusting God alone, I see in this section of Isaiah, and, and right before it in Isaiah, I see three things. Meekness, repentance, and rest. Meekness, repentance, and rest. Hezekiah was meek. I think Abraham Lincoln was meek. And we looked at meekness last year. Like I said, go back and listen to that sermon if you didn't. Not last year, last week. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is, again, in his first teaching. The first thing he wants us to know. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are these meek, humble people. John Stott says the meek are happy, deeply happy in a way which the big-headed can never aspire. The background to this verse is Psalm 37, 11. The meek will inherit the land. This is revolutionary stuff. Not the powerful will inherit the land. The meek will inherit the land. It says that victory goes not to the wise or to the strong, but to those who are so small before God, which is what meek means, that they can afford to exalt them that God can afford to exalt them without the danger of their getting proud. And I believe that Hezekiah was meek at that moment. I believe in chapter 39, he was proud again. Again, that's why our confidence is not in humans or humans. Even though we, get, we trust in God's power and his kingdom, we will, our idolatrous hearts will turn back to these other structures and systems. But at that moment, I believe Hezekiah was meek. And I've seen some examples of meekness when I lived overseas, I worked with some Christians who were kind of bivocational, running a, a small church in their home, and all of a sudden, the government authorities got wind of it, and some, something happened, and they, they tried to shut them down, they tried to discourage them, and my friends had, they could have went in power, they could have tried to get lawsuits or say, hey, what we're doing is, is fine according to the government. But they, they chose meekness for their little church. And as the police harassed them, as the police tried to shut them down, as the local government was like, just shut down, just listen to us, just do it our way. They were like, no, we honor God. But they were always meek. They were, but they were, they were wise and they, and they just, they... I mean, literally, my friend said, every time the, the police officer would say, when are you meeting, he would not only tell him, but he would say, hey, would you come? why don't you come to our Bible study so you can learn about Jesus? And he wasn't doing that in a snarky way. He really was doing it like, like you're just doing your job for your boss as a police officer, I'm doing my job for my boss as Jesus, as King Jesus. 
And, and in the meekness, my friends, yeah, they have, they've had persecution. Yes, they've seen hardships. But their church has survived for 15 years, and it's growing, and it's reaching people. And they, they've, they've seen it spread throughout the city. And I really believe at that moment, if they would have fought for their rights and went for power, I, I don't know what would have happened. But watching them in meekness and humility and, and Hezekiah moments where they're just like, God, I could get arrested and lose the job that I got a Ph.D. for. But God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to keep leading this Bible study. I'm going to keep praying for those police officers. And if I go to jail, I go to jail. But I'm going to keep trusting you. That's an example of meekness. Russell Moore, a leader in our denomination, I believe has been meek for a long time, standing up for what's right. The dude is being attacked left and right. And I commend him for trying to be a prophetic voice. That's what we hired him to do. He's saying, I honor the powers of the kingdom of God above all other earthly powers, and I'm going to stand up for those. If you don't know who he is, um, I might put an article that he wrote. But I commend him for his meekness and for standing up for truth during this difficult time. The next thing after meekness is rest, repentance and rest. And I put them together because Isaiah 30 puts them together. In Isaiah 30, it says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. So when the Bible says this is what God says... It's always God's word, but when it hones in like this, this is good to, to listen to. It's good to focus on. In repentance and rest is your salvation. This is NIV. Some translations would say in, I think it's um, re re returning. This could also be translated returning, the word repentance. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will fl flee and the threat of, at the threat of one. And at the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left. Like a flagstaff on the mountaintop, like a banner on the hill. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. There's this rumor going around that people believe that the Old Testament is judgment and the New Testament's about grace. And I was like, the whole Bible's about God's grace. There's judgment because we're sinful, broken people, but the whole thing is about God's grace. Yes, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Alex Moiter, a New Testament, Old Testament scholar, I, th I think he actually passed away a couple years ago. He says about repentance and rest in this Isaiah passage. He says, the word called them back to him. Repentance means returning, not a feigned returning, but the one that would really bring them back to rest upon him, to literally return to the fortress, to return to the place where you really trust God. And then quietness is also in this passage, which is the opposite of power, I would say, is rest and repentance and quietness. Quietness is the absence of panic and restlessness. It is the product not of refusal to face life, but of insistence upon taking God into account and trust. 
This strength, and then it's talking about the word strength, which is also in the passage, is specifically strength for life's battles. Pretty much everything said in this passage deals with all the stuff that Lawrence brought up that, we, that many of us are struggling with. God's people need to be people of repentance and rest. And in repentance, there's, there's elements of lament, but I'm not going to talk about lament this morning. We will cover that in other parts of Isaiah. Lament is just when you just mourn over the brokenness. But, it, but after you've mourned over the brokenness and you've examined your heart, you turn back to God. And unfortunately, there are not many stories of Christians' leader who repent and then they, they actually fully become humble people and don't return back to the idolatrous power that made them have to repent in the first place. I wish there was hundreds of examples of this, but there's not. There's some, but many people, they get the power and they repent and they're more remorseful than repentful, repenting. And then they, unfortunately, because sin and brokenness, they, they, they like the power. But we can remember, so even if you've dealt with a broken pastor or a broken situation, remember the second point, that God is moving even in the brokenness. And power affects our leaders. But the church is not just the leaders and the brokenness in their power. The church is the people empowered by the Holy Spirit who, despite the brokenness, despite the failures of leadership and even their own failures, continually turn back to God, repent, turn back, and rest in Him. I could talk about, I could give you guys a self-quiz about what do you need to repent of right now? Is it pride? Is it trusting in money? Is it social media? Is it binging? COVID has wrecked us. It has literally caused us just, it, it's tough. And, I, and we're probably making mistakes and we're probably even feeling guilty. I should read my Bible more. I should do this more. I should do that more. I'm not, this isn't a sermon of guilt. This is a sermon of just saying, God, I, I know there's all these broken structures of the world, but before I can start dealing with those and engaging with those, and we will talk about how to engage those. Let's engage with our own inner what we need inside of us. I don't believe Hezekiah would have been able to truly trust God if he didn't make small decisions along the way. If every time the advisor said, hey, let's trust Egypt, let's make the alliance with these guys or those guys, and he went back to God's law and he read it and he said, no, I'm going to trust God. I promise you Hezekiah's small decisions led to him being able to make this huge decision and he didn't even have to fight a battle to win. And this happened before in the Bible. It's like every time they fight, they, they don't trust God. They lose the battle. And almost every time they do this earthly stupid thing, march around the city seven times or, or do what God says, they win. So let's be people who do what God says. My challenge for you is as we study the Sermon on the Mount, really get to know it. Go back and read Romans 12, which we studied a few weeks ago. Look at Psalm 20, Isaiah 30, John you know, 14 to 17, where Jesus leaves us with some advice on how to live in this world. And then finally, I want to end with this rest. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, or Matthew says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to be by my Father, 
No one knows the Father, the Son, except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is, what is the rest that the Old Testament talks about that Isaiah is alluding to? I believe Jesus is showing us what that rest is. Matthew is, all the rest that they wanted, that they couldn't get in the promised land, is in Jesus. He is our rest. But I love this. He doesn't say, come to me because I'm going to give you power over the systems of this world in their way, on their terms. He says, no, I'm going to give you power to fight the darkness because I'm gentle and humble in heart. That's where we find rest for our souls. When we make decisions each day, say, God, how can I exhibit the fruit of the Spirit today? How can I live out the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in these decisions? Then we'll be ready to engage. But let's be people who are meek, who turn to repentance and rest in God before we just get out there and start attacking. Let's trust God and rest and repent and rest in him. Let's pray. Father, there's so much more I could have said. This passage is so powerful and there's, there's probably so many, many people out there are like, I have more questions than before God, but I pray that all of us would look at the account of Hezekiah and look at your words in Isaiah and in Matthew and just say, can we be people who rest in you? Can we be people who rely on you alone and trust in you alone? God, show us what that looks like. Show us how to be the body of Christ, how to build each other up, even during COVID times, God. We are trusting this to you. And when we fail and we mess up, may we just pick each other up and point each other back to repentance and rest in you. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.